Willem. Hey, Gene. <laughs> How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great. Let's pretend like it's we haven't been talking for, for five minutes already. Yes, that we haven't been trying to figure out which comics are which based on the covers. It's another episode of Bookstabber, everyone's favorite book review podcast where I don't like anything and Gene likes everything. Is it a book review podcast or is it a, is it a book spoilering podcast? Is it a... I see it as an exploration of the minds of two readers. Yes. I don't think I don't think you can sell a podcast as a book spoiling podcast. That, <laughs> like I, I'm only interested in the spoiling of things. Well, I don't maybe. I'm not interested in the book. I just wanna I just wanna ruin it I mean, for my future self. I imagine I imagine uh, someone out there who has to read a book for for uh, class finding our podcast and, have, and not having to read that book <laughs> because in an have hour we ever have have we ever read a book that was on anybody's like curriculum i don't think so oh yeah yeah, yeah. As, you, as you get into grad school the reading gets more and more fun i think there must be a, a sword and sorcery uh, course somewhere in the u.s or north america or or somewhere yeah but if you're in grad if you're in grad school for sword and sorcery studies you absolutely should not be spoiling you should not be listening to this podcast as like a (laughs) academic reference as your cliff notes that is a terrible idea and we're going to demonstrate that it's a terrible idea with today's episode all about the face in the frost by john belairs yes which is published in 1969 it's his third book because let me tell you I, I needed a Cliff Notes for this book. Oh, my God. Uh, I, I just want to say before we start that uh, yeah. I, I, found, I found two things in the Wikipedia article, which is about as far as I look. So, so Belair's, I was like, why is that guy's name familiar to me? He wrote uh, The House with a Clock in Its Walls, which is a kid's book. Right, now is, a major motion picture starring Jack Black. It is, but but a quite well-known uh, children's book. Um, and he wrote a few uh, successful kid series as well kind of on into the 90s, I think, maybe a little bit beyond. This was his third novel, though. Um, his his first kids kids novel was in 73, so this is written in 69. Uh, it's a fantasy novel, obviously, because we're doing The Year of Sword and Sorcery. Um, and Leguin praised it, uh, apparently, saying, saying that she liked the way it moved between the humor and the very dark elements of the story, which I have to say is a striking thing about it. And Gijak's uh, apparently reviewed it for Dragon Magazine, <laughs> but said that he only recently read it, so it didn't really influence... Uh, <laughs> it didn't influence the game apparently, although it ended up on his reading list. But that doesn't make any sense because he, but he did put it in his appendix N. Well, he he said he, guess... he said this as I as I have not this is the the quote in Wikipedia which I didn't verify as I have not yeah. read the book until recently there is likewise no question of it influencing the game nonetheless the face in the frost could have been a prime mover of the underlying spirit of D and D, which is like well I mean that makes a lot of sense in a way that. I guess I guess he was like, listen, this didn't influence it, but I think you should read it if you're looking for inspiration. That's I think that's the what he's saying. Right? Well, or there, there was a spirit in the air, and and if, if there was a spirit in the air, this is definitely part of that spirit in the air of uh, that that led to D and D something. But um, I mean, I, I see it more as uh, kind of a precursor to Discworld in a way, like like in its. It, I can see that, yeah, in its weirdest moments, which is which is actually weird because so I am not a fan of Discworld. I sometimes oh, really? feel like I'm the only person who doesn't like. Uh, well, I'm willing to read some more Discworld. the The problem is, is that I don't find the humor in Discworld to be very funny. I I, I kind of I'm into every <laughs> other part of it. It's it's really the I I find the humor to be kind of. Um, I wouldn't I don't want to use the word juvenile because that makes that then people will think that it's you know, I'm saying that it's about boobs, but that's it's not. Well, it's it's very very silly. It's very silly, right? 
Well, right. It's uh, it's a, it's a kind of humor that makes children laugh, but like it's just not that. <laughs> that is dismissive. That is dismissive, man. I have to say, it makes me laugh, <laughs> and it's not boobs or butts or fart jokes. It is the occasional fart joke, but not 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 just fart jokes. I, I'm not anti fart joke. I I am <laughs> pro fart joke. Um, I think. Well, I do. I do not. I do. I, I, and joke. to be honest, I don't believe the face in the frost has a fart joke, but. Uh, it does have some very strange things going on. Um, you, you could have told me there was a fart joke on every page, and I would believe you because <laughs> I have such a anyway. Well, you started some you started some rant against ebooks before. Like like why why did this okay? Book, so did you read this book as an ebook? I did. So the only way I could get a copy of this within a timely manner um, in an affordable manner was I had to check it out as an ebook, which I only could read on my iPhone. Okay, which is not a very large iPhone. The only other book that we've reviewed this way um, that I read on my iPhone was um, that Conan, Conan the Rebel. Oh, the Paul Anderson one? Paul Anderson. Yeah. I am convinced that it is the most miserable way to read <laughs> in general. Well, did, did, and, you, and did you read it in, the, did you read it in an app? Phone. Did you read it like in, in the books app? What did you, how did you read it on your phone? Yes, I, I read it through the Libby app. Oh, that, that is kind of Which, a miserable way to read, read an ebook. I'll tell you. Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't. I don't know how I would get a. I don't know how I would get like if I had a Kindle, if I had a, a Amazon Fire Pad, whatever. I don't know all the ebooks. You're you're the librarian. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure if I had a larger pad, I it might have been better. Th- this was not a long book. This was actually this is a pretty short book, and it was just miserable to read on this thing. And so that definitely colors my experience. It's possible that if I had this book in paper or if I'd listened to the audiobook, I would have really enjoyed it more. I, I, um, I find but... I find that the Libby app is great for uh, audiobooks, but I don't like it particularly well for ebooks. And I think there's just some level of control it doesn't give me over the experience. I don't mind reading ebooks on my phone in other apps, but but that app, like I've tried it maybe twice and I am not doing it again. I couldn't quite tell you why because it's been so long. But um, I, you know, I think I think that it, th- that experience is different in every app, and I think because you got it from the library, you, you were kind of stuck. Uh, well, it's not that the it's not that there was anything wrong with the UI. It's that holding my iPhone to my face to read three hundred <laughs> pages is bad. It's a bad way to read. I don't want to read that way. Huh. You know. <laughs> maybe maybe you should increase the font size and hold it at arm's length and try that. I no reading tip. No, I won't. Hashtag reading tips from an old guy. <laughs> That's how I do it. I do it. I, I hold my hand as far away from myself as I can, usually on the train in Seattle, and I look at it with my reading glasses still on, and I'm trying to I'm trying to move my neck back so that I can bring everything into well, focus. <laughs> it's uh, we're we're well into the podcast. It's time to give the pitch. Oh, let's let's the pitch. pitch this book. Uh. uh... <laughs> Come on, come on. We got Prospero the Wizard. Prospero the Wizard, his friend Roger Bacon. Yep. Where, where do they live? What In what time period and in what world do these characters inhabit? They live a couple hundred years ago, maybe in our world. It's a little it's a little hard to tell. Maybe somewhere just off it, our well, world. Uh, well, they live in England. That that much is true. Well, they don't live in England because they, they talk about Roger Bacon having been away in England, and as if this place isn't England. There's a North Kingdom and a South Kingdom. Um, well, they, they live in what is now... The United Kingdom. Uh, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say it's it's it's, it's United Kingdom-ish. Um, 
They, they they live in the the lower kingdoms, which is a bun- as it is described okay. as like just tiny villages, each that have their own feudal lord and are constantly you know e- each of them thinks they're great and but they are, none of them amount to a hill of beans. They are wacky friend friend duo. They they are they are good friends and uh, but, something is out. But there are many references. Oh. Oh, so, sorry, something something is is uh, clearly out to kill Prospero. Uh, who, it must be noted, also has a very smart-alecky magic mirror. Uh, and as the thing comes to kill Prospero, uh, there's a magical book involved, and uh, he and Bacon uh, set off, kind of pursued by by agents of whatever is trying to, whoever or whatever is trying to kill Prospero. Uh, they set off to try to solve the riddle of who that is and how to how to stop them is that is that a fair assessment of the book yeah that that i would say is about as good as a pitch that anyone can give for this book um yeah if you like if you're like wizards if you like fanciful wizards having an adventure if you like Discworld, uh go ahead and pick up a copy of uh, this book from your local library well the, 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 and maybe you'll have a good time before we spoil it well i i think the humor in this book like is so weird because it depends on extreme shifts in tone like sudden and extreme shifts in tone, like, like Belair's can be scaring the crap out of you one second and then suddenly making you laugh. And it, it's, it's very strange. I, I can see that it's very well written, um, but but just that 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 quick change in tone is very is very odd to me. Um, and right, should we get some uh, some content warnings uh, that, that if you're easily spooked. I don't know. Like nothing. I don't think anything like truly vile happens. Well, but 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 it but right? it is scary. It is scary as heck. Like like I I think I could. Well, this isn't a kids book. It's very clearly not a kids book. There's like an astro- anachronistic uh, humor where like Prospero is thinking about looking in his um looking in his magic mirror. I think it's at some time in the past, and he ends up watching a 1943 game between the Cubs and the New York Giants. Right. I mean, right. It, it's right. you're like, what? what? What is this? What's going on? I don't I don't understand. Well, if you I mean, if you've ever seen, you know, Disney Sword in the Stone, you, you this, the idea of anachronistic time travel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Future scene wizards is not the newest uh, thing. Oh, I didn't I didn't I didn't think about that. But yeah, that's a that's a great uh, that's a great kind of uh, work mm-hmm. that has something to do something in common with this and probably from about the same time period. Right. Um. Well, if this was, yeah, fairly close. I mean, I mean, what what, what I what I found so weird like, going back through it as I do before we we do these things is like, so there's like this prologue that is a bunch of explainy stuff, which I I don't love in a book, but it was fine. It's a little bit like there's a narrator here. Okay, we're letting us know there's a narrator, right? Like there's these two wizards and there's these kingdoms and here's some history that I immediately forget. Uh, and then chapter one opens up in Prospero's house and it's like he's a, he's clearly a hoarder of some kind. Uh, you know, his house is on the edge of this shadowy forest. <clears throat> it, every, there's everything a wizard would need in there: bubbling uh, beakers and uh, a skull and a talking mirror. And the mirror is a smartass, and it's kind of strange. And then um, he goes into his cellar, and there's this cloak that he doesn't remember being his cloak. And the cloak kind of it becomes very spooky very fast in his cellar. Remember that scene? Yeah, I, I do. Like he's he's freaked out. Uh, and the cloak kind of comes for him, and then it's just a cloak. Um, and he's, like, kind of ashamed. And then he looks outside, and his friend Roger Bacon is there. And Bacon reminds me of uh, Rincewind a little bit, the the wizard from the Discworld books. Uh, his his luggage is, is uh, described as crouching at his feet like an absurd and lumpy short-haired dog. So uh, you remember the luggage in, in Discworld that's alive? 
not not as well. You don't remember the luggage? Oh, the luggage is great. Um, I don't know. There's a Discworld. This is not the Discworld podcast, but Discworld has a billion things like that. It's 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 so much uh, all the time. It it, it 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 does, but in the color of magic, it's it's definitely like rinse wind in the luggage that gets the whole thing going. It's the first book, and I, I don't know, but 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 like like so so Prospero goes out there and isn't really talking about what just happened in the cellar, what happened in the cellar, and uh, Bacon has been standing there for a couple of hours, and he's like. You know, there's some kind of will out here, something that wants to kill you. It's a human. Um, oh, and there's a, there's a whole thing with a moth that's kind of freaky, uh, and the moth flies away. And then they have this conversation about a book that's written in a code nobody nobody understands that's uh, basically gone from one library to another, uh, and, and nobody's ever returned it, and uh, Prospero sent Bacon out to find information about it, it seems like, and... That that's where that's where they leave it. It's it's very strange, but like okay, we're very clearly setting up some plot, and then they wake up and um, the whole they're having breakfast. Like like Prospero just offhandedly offers him breakfast and uh, lets Bacon know that the whole house is surrounded by these gray things that are that are there to kill him. It seems like um, I mean like 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 it's kind of all over the place, right? It's not unpleasant, but it's all over the place. Right. So I uh, I like the book so far the the beginning of the book i think is very good and i was excited to read it. i i, I, I did the, too yeah yeah i thought the opening description was fanciful in a way that was not uh it was not overly you know it wasn't overdoing it i liked prospero's house i liked prospero i liked these kind of a bumbling wizard um i was intrigued by you know the 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 thing that is fearful that is happening and suddenly, you know, we're beset by enemies, and th- and we escape, and and this is all pretty good. But then I would say almost immediately, the book, <laughs> like for for me, the ba- the book basically ended, right? <laughs> like the the part of it that I was enjoying just stops, and then everything from this point onward is just kind of it was unreadable to me. I, I have to I have to say that I had some of that same reaction, like, and my reaction was more in that it didn't. Um... It didn't make me want to read more at any point. Yeah, like like it was it was right. it was vague and specific and and it was just a series of little adventures that weren't that weren't enough to pull me through. Right. I really almost did not finish reading this book just because it was so difficult to make myself read this book, and I and I found that really odd that we've read much worse books. <laughs> I think. Yes, yes, For, yes, yes. And you know that's not to say that they were easy to read, but um, I could do it, and this one was pulling teeth. It was so difficult to just continue because there was it really was no sense of progress at any point. It did not feel like the author knew what what was going on at all. And then when once the character started knowing what was going on, I didn't know what was going on because I was just my eyes had glazed over. Well, I think I think this is uh, the Zelazny book for me had some of this um, yeah. because it felt like there was like an inevitability at work in the Zelazny book. Um, with the character and just I think, with the adventures yeah. th- that that and and with this too, right? It, they were just going to kind of bumble their way along. Um, well, I think that with the case of uh, Nine Princes in Amber, the difference is that to me, what was going on was obvious enough that I I I could follow along sufficiently at a certain point, right? That it was like okay, we we can tell that you know. They're siblings and they're they're magical rulers of some kind and they're doing all the sin fighting and anything beyond that isn't actually that important, right? Right, right, right. And and so it's 
fairly easy to follow the adventures, even if you're not picking up every single detail. But in this one, like I, I did have to look up at one point, you know, what the hell is going on in this book? And some of the some of the things that I was reading on the cliff notes, I was like, really? Did that happen? When? Like, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm going to say this. Like, like, I think Belair's writing is is like fantastic in a certain way. Um, mm-hmm. n- not necessarily the plot of this book, right? But but the writing is fantastic, and and I can totally see. I can look at this and say, oh yeah, I can see that this guy wrote a great kids book. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like it's 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 so accessible and and kind of silly and yeah, and, absolutely, and pulls you in. And I really want to. This make this reading this book makes me want to read that the house with the clock in the wall. Um, now like I more. don't. Uh... I don't know that I agree that you couldn't give this book to a kid. Like, no, I, I just mean like the the anachronisms and stuff. Like, they wouldn't speak to a kid. I, I I I mean I mean I think a kid. Some kids would read this. I would have read this when I was a kid. But I just I don't think the anachronisms make it not for kids. I think in a way it has that kind of quality of you know, Tolkien, not a nasty wet hole nor a dry sandy hole. Like, there's a little bit of that. Like, I'm reading a story to you, you know, quality to it that is in classic children's literature there, there is but i would say that i would say the vagueness of the way things resolve in this book would make it even more boring to a kid than it was to us like, like i don't i don't disagree with that but i think the scary parts might actually hook a kid right oh yeah, yeah perhaps yeah I, I i don't think it's i don't think it's too scary for all kids but some some kids who are, are terrified like it's definitely beyond rl stein scary right in, in in some in some moments so one of the um like one of the lines in the very beginning that i really enjoyed was you know the the narrator introducing us to the, the wizard prospero and then you know comma not the one that you're thinking of and i was like that's a great joke you know? that, is, that is pretty good yeah but but like a kid would not understand it and a kid doesn't have to understand it you know i, I agree with you but but i think right. I, I think a kid uh who read fantasy novels might might read this back then but not not now it, it's it's a little bit if you were an english schoolboy in the 60s you might be, have to know who shakespeare's prospero is uh but a child today would not which just goes to show that education has <laughs> gone downhill well there are there are still children's I'm... books of shakespeare stories so I, I you know not quite not quite and there are movies and whatever but I, I oh i'm sorry when's the last time when's the last time you saw a film adaptation of the tempest uh well there was that one with helen mirren and it wasn't there didn't didn't uh, she play prospero in the last adaptation that was and, out am i crazy uh this is news to me i'm now i now i kind of want to watch that sounds cool um i don't know if that's real well after watching helen after watching helen mirren and shazam fury of the gods i i gotta tell you i'm less likely to watch it <laughs> Well, but still, uh, that that was your first mistake was going to see Shazam: oh, Fury of the Gods. I had to take my nephew. My nephew wanted to see it. It was his birthday. I'm like, okay, oh, all right, I'm sorry. all right. No, no, it was okay. It was entirely okay. You know, I like I like the Shazam well, family. I'm, I'm sorry that you uh, gave money to Zachary Levy, a famous <laughs> anti-vax, and probably has bad opinions and beliefs in other ways. Well, it's hard. It's hard to avoid giving giving money uh, to people you don't want to give money to. So I, I just I, I, I I'm trying not to think about it. It was, yeah, that's a good point, actually. Yeah. It was Shazam, though. It was Shazam? I mean, uh, you know, my favorite, my favorite uh, superhero as a kid. So it's weird, though. So, so in the movie, this is a total aside, but Billy Batson is turning eighteen, which is a huge mistake in the Shazam movie. It, it, yeah, that doesn't make sense. Billy Batson has to be like five, you know. What what are the ongoing well, jokes? Well, that's is the... Billy Batson has the hots for Wonder Woman, and it's like, oh, come come on. Right. If he's eighteen, then then yeah, that's. I, but okay, part of the problem they, they they couldn't walk it backwards from the first movie because in the first movie Billy Batson's already like fourteen. Right. 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 
he's already too damn old. And that's because <laughs> they went with the gross new 52 Jeff Johns. Uh, Shiz- I still want to call him Captain Marvel. I like, here's the thing. There can be more than one Captain Marvel. I'm okay with the Marvel Captain Marvel and the DC Captain Marvel. Cause it's really easy to know who you're actually talking about at any given moment. Mm-hmm. I think DC editorials decision to just rename the character Shazam is it's what, you know, I suppose on a marketing decision, it's fine. Uh, the book was called Shazam for, for many decades, whatever. Is it, is, is it an IP issue at this point? I think it might be, you know? Well, yeah, but it's rooted in a in what is now almost a hundred year old, like IP issue, right? They, there are so many Captain Marvels on, on both sides of the comic book. Well, and uh, what was the DC era? What was the, the British one where, because Captain Marvel was really big in, back in like, post-world war ii and then um they couldn't get the licensing rights and so they just invented a new character that was captain marvel in every other way are you talking Mir- miracle man um, yeah miracle man like that's a whole, like what a bizarre oh, no, no, like, no, no, character did, history did they call him marvel man initially i can't remember there's there something like that right where yeah well there was marvel man and then there's miracle man right so it's it's one of these things that is spiraled out of control it's, <laughs> it's a it's a legalistic uh, nightmare for everyone involved. Okay, huge digression, huge digression. Now, now we're back, now we're back, yeah. now we're back to... Well, un- unfortunately, talking about uh, Shazam is more interesting in many yeah, ways than it's, it's going to be hard to avoid this. John Belair's. I mean, there are some, there are some interesting things here. Uh, so the way they get out of the house, uh, there's this ridiculous chant, and they shrink down. They, they go through the root cellar, they shrink down to fit onto this miniature boat that Prospero has, and they take this underground right. river... They have an encounter with a troll that's stolen part of Prospero's windscreen that's that's rusted through and bacon frees them. And then they go into a lake and they're they're in the uh, realm of King Gorm the Third, the Wonder Worker, and uh, he's an introspective magician and a model railroad hobbyist who has like a model galaxy, model universe in his in his in his room. I don't know. It's so weird. Um I, I, I didn't. I didn't care at all. It was. It was hard going back to it to go. What did I get out of this? Like, I, I don't really know. But then uh, Prospero, they leave, and and uh, Prospero realizes that uh, Roger is kind of supposed to go off and go somewhere else to find out about the book, and Prospero's going somewhere else, and uh, then evil takes Roger's form basically and uh, says he's dead, and his staff withers, and Pros- tells Prospero to go home, and Prospero doesn't go home. Uh, so we're like, oh, is Bacon dead? We don't know, but this book is, there's not a lot there. So you're like, okay, that's fine. And then there's a cursed stone, which is kind of a nice moment. Remember that moment where Prospero sees a wizard kind of in effigy in a tree and then sees a, uh, a campfire burning, goes off to see if there's people and, uh, he sees his own face in the water in the stone that has a curse towards him on it. And he calls out some word we don't we don't hear and uh, he calls out the name of his teacher michael scott right which i could not look i appreciate that when this book was written michael scott was probably a cool name and made sense for a an old english wizard (laughs) (laughs) but i i could not think couldn't not think about the office every time it showed up which in a way i guess was one of the better parts of the book for me was i just kept imagining steve carell as michael scott just being like a master archmage. That's even better. Um, that, <laughs> he, well, Michael Scott was a Scottish borders wizard, apparently. Um, oh, this is an actual mythological. Character. But I like I like the anachronism of Michael Scott from The Office. That's perfect. <laughs> well, now I feel. I love it. Now I now I feel a fool that I didn't actually. No, no, no. It. I like I like your interpretation better. It, it it actually makes the book more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, <laughs> and then and then Prospero just keeps going. He goes places where there where wizards aren't really wanted. Uh, he's sleeping in an inn where he's not telling anybody he's a wizard, and he's he's looking at uh, what's the what's the guy's name? Uh, Mel- Melicus. He's looking at Melicus's old house, and he goes to this town right. that, that chased him out and. Uh, Stays in, a, stays in an inn, and in the morning, the landlord's upset because some weird creature came and tried to kill him at night, and okay. And then Prospero throws in three gold coins that whoosh embed themselves into a mantle. It's kind of nice. Uh, and then he goes into this spooky place called the Empty Forest that I really dug. It was nice. It was like out of a Jeff Vandermeer book. Just tangled messes of plants, no animals, no stumps, no bugs, no n- nothing. It was just kind of cool, and he finds uh, Melicus Magister's uh, grave marker there with a curse on the on the stone uh prospero says the curse is terrible uh and prospero then uses the necromantic uh parts of his wizard book which he which are very unused to uh call melicus uh from the grave and melicus doesn't come but some boy who's actually buried in the tomb comes and it's pretty spooky right it's a nice scene it's just yeah the problem is i just didn't understand what was going on and so i couldn't I had a hard time caring, right? It is really hard to go know what's going on, yeah. I, I think I've said this multiple points on the podcast. If this were a movie, I think I could appreciate it more. Yeah. And I, I feel bad for saying that. But part of it is because it was very hard at this point in the book to give my full attention to this thing, to not be distracted by everything else around me, and to, to like, wrestle with... Like, I, I you know, reading this book, at the point at which we're at... Uh, like, I, I am reading the words, but I'm not digesting all of them. In part because nothing in the book is... It, it, this is not what you would call a page-turner. It, it, it's not it's not getting my investment any which way, and so, you know... But some of the pages are so good. Like, 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 like the pages where, where he summons this thing, and it crawls out of the... This tattered gray thing crawls out of the forest, onto the grass, like, toward the, the circle he's drawn. It can't come into the circle, and it's... It's not quite described enough, so you have to kind of fill in the blanks. Like, like it was good, right? Yeah. See, it, well, see that page. I don't remember. Hmm. I couldn't tell you that. Like, it's I, I, I mechanically read this book, but I understood very little of it, and that's hmm. you know, I, I'll, I'll admit that's on me. I'd, you know, I'd fail the test. But I, if, if I were in an English class right now and I had to read this, I'd fail that test. Well, what, what, um, what, what drives me crazy about it is like, so in this section, he, he like, he realizes it was like some, uh, some boy who worked for Melicus and who was buried there instead of his master. Like when the people came for the wizard. But what I don't like about it is he like looks at the, at the stone and in the inscription, he sees some, he sees how the curse was twisted against the boy instead of against Melicus himself. And then he goes and gets like a some tools and wipes it out. But it's not really explained like what that means. He, d- he uses a hammer and chisel to wipe it out and then heads heads north again. And you, I, I'm, yeah. I'm left going, I don't understand what just happened either. You know, like, so you have this huge buildup, this really spooky scene. And then he goes off and threatens right. a blacksmith and, and comes back. Prospero <laughs> does. And it's not a terrible threat. Yeah. And, then, and then he's moving again. And then... Like, I'm like, what? And so the next one is one that I really didn't get. Do you remember the five dials scene? It's a town. Yeah. Okay. So this, this, I remember better. Um, but, but once, and I remember thinking like, oh, okay. And, and for the time at which this was written, I feel like this is, this is really good horror that was ahead of its time in a way. Yeah. Like, I feel like now I've seen this scene play out in a million movies. 
Um, and it's not to say that it's bad, you know, it's tropes are tropes for a reason. Um, but yeah, I, I, I sort of appreciated this part. The, the book became a little more lucid for me for some reason. So, so explain the scene, explain the scene. All right. So, uh, Prospero, he, he comes into this town, he goes to an inn, you know, he gets a room, he lights a pipe, uh, he's, he's doing his, his normal thing. And then he, he wakes up in the middle of the night, right? And he discovers uh, the the tavern keeper. And he he knows something's wrong. I, I'm I'm gonna get some details wrong here. I'm sure. Uh, he he he, um, got, he kind of he wakes up. There's like a strong box in his room. It's been there, but he realizes he can't open it. And he goes into the corridor, and he's kind of trapped, in a way. And he keeps recalling that imagery from the five dials, like like which is four clock faces and a black clock face, and four cards mm-hmm. and a blank card. But but he realizes he's trapped in this corridor that's kind of warped a little bit. And then he goes into the the only room he can see that's labeled, which is the landlord's room. And then he sees. Uh, then he sees the, 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 the tavern keeper or, or waitress of some, some serving woman. Uh, but she's like a, she's like a mannequin. She has like dead empty eyes and she's holding like a, a big nasty knife. Uh, who tells, who tells uh, Prospero to just go back to bed. Is that right? Well, she, she's she, was, well, she, she's like she's frozen there for a, for a bit, right? And 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 the butcher knife rolls out of her like her clothes, I think, where she, she's holding it, but she's like really frozen. And then she, yeah, she tells him to to go back. And then how does it resolve? Do you remember? Well, doesn't doesn't he? I don't remember. He leaves. I think he just leaves, right? I don't think he leaves. He just like he just suddenly like he he kind of runs. He kind of runs. The walls are bulging. The the door like kind of warps enough to grab his leg. Everything's stretching, and then he's just suddenly in a field. <laughs> like I was yeah. like, I don't understand what just happened. Like, well, and then and then we discover, I think that that town was just fake, and then he finds the real Five Dials. Yes, yeah, 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 and and he finds all of his stuff. All of his stuff is still there, so it's not even like a way to get his stuff away from him. Which I would, you know, what I mean, like in a D and D adventure, you're just trying to get their stuff. You're kind of trying to separate the party from all their supplies, right? To give them some kind of impetus to do something, lest they die. Uh, at least that's the way we used to play. Um, yeah, it was weird. Um, but 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 that creepy scene was great. That creepy scene was like so good. Uh, it was okay. Um, but that's just it. Even like you who read it more attentively than I did, you also don't like d- that. Maybe grabbed his leg, and then it didn't matter. Like I don't know. I don't think that. I, I. It's one thing to create tension and then diffuse it, but you know, like sure, we all we all need some contraction release. That that is good writing. But that doesn't mean it shouldn't amount to anything, right? That doesn't mean that it, it should just not matter. Like, w- because the, the villain of this book is, I mean, there's, I understand so little about him at all. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, well, well but, you, you uh, get some explanation of him in the next scene, but. Well, but okay. So he wants to, he wants to kill Prospero because Prospero is the only guy who knows anything about him, I guess. And that's, a, that's his weakness, right? He's, he's just trying to get rid of anyone who can stop his evil plan no no it's it, it, it's more than that so uh so well, yeah. well so, so prospero leaves leaves the field goes along and do you remember the the tree the tree was great he's kind of he, no i don't remember the tree he's going through this gray forest and uh one of the one of the leaves like rubs his face and it cuts him and and it turns red because it drinks his blood the, the leaf does that was nice that was a nice moment it gets it gets nowhere but and then he goes to he goes to an inn, and then he's reunited with Roger, and and they recount their their uh, adventures to each other, and Roger uh, says basically Roger, who's still alive, says that Melicus took took the book from a monk in Glastonbury and has the book, this book that was 
magic and is trying to use it. And Prospero says, and I know he's not dead. <laughs> and then, and then um, Prospero, Prospero says, I know why he wants to kill me. Like out of nowhere. He says, I know why he wants to kill me. And he describes this green glass paperweight that at the end of their wizard training, uh, he and Melicus lived together for a few months, <laughs> as evil and good wizards often do. And they had to combine their powers to make a magical object. And they quarreled a lot because Melicus is kind of a dick. They made this thing that's like made of, it's like a, a green paperweight made of four green glass globes. And you can kind of use it as a scrying device. But um, they couldn't take it from the house where they made it because to do that, they would have to take it together. They'd have to always touch it together. They could never be apart. They'd have to be chained together. So Melicus left. Um, and Prospero always kind of thought maybe it was a toy, but now he thinks it's not a toy because uh, and he explains that like Melicus has been had this book for a long time and he's he's been trying to learn terrible things from the book. But because they made this thing together, like uh, maybe Prospero has a share of that power and might be able to use it against him. It might be able to work to wipe him out. And so Melicus has become murderous toward Prospero. And and does does this explanation come from anywhere? Not really, right? I mean, I <laughs> right. like it's just it's just it's it's like so it's like the worst kind of explanation because because we've kind of worked for it but not exactly. But it's also, I mean, if this book was like 150 pages longer because we saw that, I wouldn't be any happier, right? So I guess it's okay. Yeah. You know, and then yeah, I really wanted to like this book. <laughs> Well, then we have the scene yeah. where Prospero destroys a bridge with magic, and Bacon makes a carriage, and there's no good pumpkins around, so... And I don't know why they need to destroy the bridge. I don't know why they're trying to stop these soldiers. I... Well, they're, trying to, they're, they're being hunted, right, by the, by the things that were around Prospero's house, by Melicus's agents. Now there's soldiers coming to the north from the south, and they're kind of trying to stop everything to, to I think, to save themselves, but also to keep people safe. Um there's this really terrible yeah. moment where they meet this man on the on the road and uh, they go to his house to sleep and they hide the carriage and the guy says hey a long time ago a guy said that somebody with the with a name beginning with p would need this key here's this key it's yeah it's a brass key i think it's you yeah. it's supposed to be someone with the initial p and we've oh had a lot God. of p's but you're you're a cool guy and you seem different so it's probably you and I do, I do remember this because I only finished this book yesterday. Uh, Prospero's like, I'm gonna cast a spell in your backyard that's gonna make your dandelion wine taste. <laughs> it's gonna win the county fair. Taste and... dandy as dandelion wine does. Taste dandy. Uh, and and the so this key is special. And and oh, and they're they're now they're moving towards uh, the house where Melicus and Prospero made this thing to see if the paperweight is still there. And then. At the beginning of chapter nine, there's this description out of nowhere that people are terrified because there's these frost masks on the window, which are apparently Melicus, and the wind has a voice. And this monk, who is kind of a poison ivy figure, uses plants to help them over the mountain, but they can't go. Yeah, that was very confusing. I'm sure that's a figure we're supposed to know more about, but I don't know. And then they go to this house. <laughs> they go to this house, which is, is, is insane. It looks exactly like it did when Prospero and Melicus were there, except for there's some extra firewood. And uh, the green glass paperweight is just sitting there on a shelf. And, and uh, apparently uh, Melicus is the wizard with OCD because everything is back in exactly the place where it used to be, right? And then Prospero starts smashing things to stir him from his bibliophilic torpor because, because uh, Melicus is studying the book. Um, and then uh, the face in the frost talks to them and, and uh, Prospero runs away and there's a bunch of light from Melicus throwing at Prospero, and then Prospero vanishes. And he now he knows he's inside the glass, chapter 10. <sighs> and, and, uh... We get... 
It's okay. We we can call defeat. We we can we oh. can put the book down. I don't I don't know that either us or the audience are going to be enriched by describing the the last thing in the book. Like I, f- I feel like uh, or or do you want some catharsis out of this? Well, I'm I'm uh, so I'm so confused because he's inside the glass and there's a guy. There's there's a sign that says Mr. Millhorn like like sharpens like axes and lawnmowers. Yeah. We sell used nails and back doors and right. Prospero goes in there and there's this wizard named Millhorn. I don't know if this is supposed to be Michael Scott. I don't know. And he has the Kabbalah and he gets into a big fight with uh, <laughs> Melicus who comes for Prospero inside the thing. And Prospero runs through a door into his house or into his yard and then into his house. And, and the key comes into, do you remember how the key comes into play? The key was kind of cute. The really important key. I mean, Prospero still has the key to the old house. Prospero has the key to his, his house. Um, but the special yeah. key doesn't come into play until when he's running around in his house and uh, he realizes it opens a locked cubby hole like uh, inside of his house and he opens it and there's a little carved squirrel with a note in its teeth that says, use the spell fool. And then he shouts a spell that I have no idea what it is. And I, I don't know if it's a reference <laughs> to something that I learned earlier in the book. And then it's all over. Yeah. And then it's all over. Yep. <laughs> and that's Christmas Eve. The book's over. And there's a, there's a denouement. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It was extremely, when, when I realized the book was over, I I didn't know why. I didn't know why it was over. I didn't know why it was over. And yet. I didn't. <laughs> this was such a bad ending. Oh. And I I, I want to say nice things about this book. I do. I want to like this book. It, this is a this is a real dud. It's not even a um. It's not even a book that's worth getting angry over. It's just a dud. You know. Well, even even the even I, the I, denouement I, isn't good because. Because, like, uh, they're all together, and there's, like, a, another mirror joke, and Millhorn comes from out of the glass. But uh, Prospero's, Prospero's, like, kind of trying to explain what happened, and he said, it's a harrowing feeling to face someone you know can kill you if he puts his mind to it. But he didn't put his mind to it. <laughs> and I was like, what the fuck, man? Are you kidding me? Yeah, he didn't try very hard, he didn't, apparently. That's right. And now he is uh, apparently a stone marker at the crossroads. That's what the wizard has been turned into. All's well that ends. Oh, and the, and, and the book read itself and burned up the end <laughs> I, I i'm gonna i'm gonna say this i'm gonna say this and i i don't know if you will understand what i mean i know that this book this is some people's favorite novella ever because there was nothing else really? like this and because because it is it is well written in a certain way and because the adventures are the adventures are crazier if you haven't read everything they expi- they inspire which is i mean this this book is i think i think a big deal in the history of fantasy, it's yeah. You, well, you know, you know, you know what I mean. I, I mean, I, I, I can, I can see, I can see this thing has its place, and I'm struggling to understand its place. And I hope it comes a little clearer as we keep reading sword and sorcery books. Well, it feels like uh, William Goldman, um, the the Princess Bride. Yeah, yeah, book. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it, so it feels like it, in the in the opening in the prologue where William Goldman the the, the false idea that uh, this is really a book by S. Morgenstern and that he's just edited out the boring parts. Right. And and now and now you result in a really fun, exciting adventure full of quips and and drama. I feel like I want to do that to this book. I feel like I just want to just rewrite it basically mm-hmm. and just improve it. <laughs> Uh, you know, someone should adapt this in some form and just make it not suck. Just take out the parts <laughs> that are bad and then put it put in a real ending, and and then we could just re-release it and all enjoy it, right? Well, I'm, I'm, but like like this was written in '69, and the Princess Bride was written in '73. Like yeah. like would the Princess Bride have been written if this hadn't been there? I don't know. 
I do. Well, I think that when Goldman is... I think Goldman is taking the piss out of a lot of different authors, and I don't think that John Belair's is one of them. I think he's taking the piss out of Tolkien and um, probably some probably some other people, you know, because part of the premise of that book is that, you know, my father read this to me when I was a child, but he skipped all the boring parts, right? Sure. And and so he would, is you know, William Goldman's father would not have read it. And, and maybe maybe that's all maybe he's not parodying anything although i think he is but uh well, I, I i don't it's really beside the point. i'm not saying i'm not saying goldman was directly inspired by this book but I, but i think that, that the fact that this book like was in the market and i mean it, it's it's making me go like what was the first funny fantasy novel i think we need to i think we need to look for that we need to kind of think about that I, I, uh, that's an interesting idea. I mean, based on reading Appendix N uh, by Gary Gygax, like, you know, The Fallible Fiend is a much better funny fantasy novel that I'm sure must have come out earlier. What's The Fallible Fiend? Uh, it is a story uh, told from the perspective of a demon that has been summoned from hell to serve a wizard. And it's just it's a constant misadventure. Uh, it was originally published in a magazine in, I think, two parts. And so... It, it has that kind of great mo- uh, road movie quality to it where you just go from one weird situation to another over and over, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, doesn't uh, doesn't give it high literary appeal. But in terms of being a funny fantasy novel, I, I think it's very good. Hmm. Well, I'm going to look into that a little bit more. But uh, yeah, I'm, I mean, if I if I give it a couple of hours thought, I'm sure I could. What was that book? What was that book's name again? Really? The Fallible Fiend uh, by... L. Sprague de Camp, I think is the name. Oh, see, now that was that was after this as well. Oh, really? Yeah, that was seventy two, seventy three in Fantastic Magazine. So, yeah, I mean, I I just wonder if this didn't kind of break that ground. But I, I yeah, I'll have to go back. I mean, I guess I guess uh, listeners, if you know anything else, uh, I mean, I mean, The Hobbit has humor in it. Like there are funny things. If, if we could just find the history of fantasy well i i i mean i'm adding that one to our list <laughs> which one which one the fallible fiend by elspreg de camp which i've never read okay um sure. yeah i mean the wizard of oz is funny and his fantasy and predates us by that's true decades. that's true I, I i just think this book this book feels like the wrong length for what it is like i feel like it could have been a very great short story and i feel like it would have been a much worse novel you know what i mean like i i, I just it feels i'm well it just kind of feels like it, it's right now it just kind of isn't anything right it's well, almost uh it's it's setting it's setting without plot you know well there, there, there's definitely plot but it but it's missing some connective tissue for me and it's missing some some descriptions i can follow i mean it's it's purposely vague in places for a reason i can't fathom How, how's that like I don't know if people found that vagueness like really fun back in the day. I mean I'm I'm struggling to remember how the the wizardry in Tolkien was uh, was kind of um, portrayed because it's also a very vague kind of wizardry. Whereas whereas these days in fantasy novels, I feel like it's almost like superpowers. People are very people and what they can do are very defined. Like you have to have, almost have a, a very uh, hard coded magic system. Not everybody does, mm-hmm. um, and and this really doesn't doesn't have that. But um, this also feels like a very classic kind of magic system as well, where, where wizards just do things, and, and here we go. So, yeah, I don't know. Do you, can you th- uh, yeah. 
I mean, if, if, if you were editing this, what would you what would you do? What would you what would you say to Belair's start over? I would. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, I would. Well, I would make a list of all the scenes that we really like, right? And then I would trim down the parts that aren't that. I would I would reduce them in 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 quantity. I would I would make it so that you you know keep keep the the keep this in between scenes to an absolute minimum. Uh, and then I would say, okay, can we can we make the villain? Can we punch up the villain a little bit? Can we make him nastier? Can we make him more scary? Can we can we make it so that you know Prospero is really you know matters in the story that that if if he had not <clears throat> succeeded that you know things would be really terrible. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, as of right now, I feel like Roger Bacon is also a little superfluous. Like, I like him, and I want him to matter. I feel like he could do a little bit more. Maybe we have a chapter where Roger does something interesting and we're following him instead of Prospero. Yeah, I, you know, I don't think it needs a ton of revision. I just think it needs, like, it, 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 it does need some editing, and it needs a little punching up. That's it. That's the problem. It's very close to being a good book. <laughs> it's it's so close. I, I I think this is just this is just us spoiled by by better fantasy by by good omens by by Discworld well, by that's, you know. I yeah, but that's a uh, I don't know. We, we'll we'll never we we can't go back in time. Right? <laughs> that's true. That's true. Okay, are we calling it? I think we're calling it. Yeah, this was, uh, this was, uh, what is the book even called? The Face in the Frost by John Belairs. <laughs> it was, a, it's another book stabber in the book stabber hole. Okay. All right. Uh, if you know any, uh, any book we should read for the Year of Swords and Sorcery, something, something from the, hopefully from the 50s, 60s, or 70s, uh, email us, uh, bookstabberpodcast at gmail.com. Give us your suggestion. Give us a short pitch for the book. We'd love to hear from you. Um, we still have to pick the next book too so i guess we'll do that when we're offline all right i've been uh, yes. i've been gene i've been willow keep uh keep stabbing keep stabbing